CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London on the 12th and 13th of June, 2021. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favorite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by crime and investigation. I will be there all weekend, so come and join us. Quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now, and you can pay in installments. Plus, not only are tickets COVID-proof, CrimeCon also have a date for September 2021 if COVID is still causing trouble for us in June. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all there. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Raoul Moat. was born in 1973 in Newcastle, in the northeast of England. As one of the major cities of the United Kingdom, Newcastle has a fairly predictable history. Establishment as a Roman settlement, a boom during the Industrial Revolution, and a harsh contraction after the Second World War, which, as it does, affected those in working-class areas most harshly. Moat had had a difficult childhood. He had a half-brother who was three years older. Neither of their fathers were in the picture. Their mother, Josephine, suffered with manic depression and spent time in and out of hospitals. Even when she was at home, she was less than present. Their grandmother stepped in as best she could, but it was difficult. Angus, Raoul's older brother, later told Vanessa Howard, author of Raoul Moat, His Short Life and Bloody Death, quote, Yeah, It made me angry. I'm always angry. I'm still angry, just not as angry as Raoul. Though he was teased as a boy and kept himself to himself, this changed for Moat when he got into martial arts. After this, it was weightlifting and bodybuilding. His personality was built around being a hard man. There were suggestions he also used steroids to help him bulk up. He was known to be aggressive. Former girlfriends reported that he was abusive in their relationships. Moat's first long-term relationship was with a woman named Melissa. Together they had two daughters, though there were reports that Moat may have had up to three other children outside of this. Moat's aggression was a feature of their time together and ultimately led to the end of this relationship and Moat's loss of contact with his kids but Moat also valued the notion of family, and so not having his two daughters with him was untenable. Melissa was subjected to threats from Moat, which began when their relationship ended. And what followed was a battle for custody for the two girls, during which Moat's ex alleged she had visits from the police looking for drugs and guns, and there was an accusation that she was neglecting the children. Melissa said that the accusations were totally false, and that she suspected that Moat had made them in an effort to harass her and to attempt to regain access to the girls. The RSPCA were even called to the house after being told she was abusing her dog. In 2004, Moat started his next serious relationship with Samantha Stopert. Moat had met Samantha while he was working on the door at a club called Liquid in Newcastle's Biggs Market. She was 16 at the time. 15 years, Moats Jr. From the outset, Moat and Samantha's relationship was rocky. It was punctuated by Moat's outbursts of anger. Sometimes Samantha would pack her things and leave, but afterwards Moat would apologise, say he didn't mean it, that he was sorry, and that it would never happen again. In October of 2006, Moat's two daughters from his previous relationship moved in with him, 
Their mother had only limited access to them from that point, and Moat's relationship with her remained strained. Then, when Moat found out Samantha was pregnant in January of 2009, he made the decision that this time, things would be different. This was a second chance for Moat to try and achieve his vision of an idyllic family life, after Moat's own childhood had been less than picturesque. He was allocated a three-bed, semi-detached home in Fenham Hall Drive, where he hoped to turn over a new leaf with his new family. As would be expected given the fraught history of his past relationships, the local council and social services were involved in Moat's household, and despite his stated desire to turn over a new leaf, these services documented angry outbursts from Moat on occasion. Moat was suspicious of basically anyone in authority. He installed CCTV in the new home and would record his conversations with social workers and other staff sent on behalf of the council. Moat felt as if they were unfairly targeting him, despite the fact that, in some cases, he had asked for their assistance. In fact, Moat had actually once recorded himself telling social workers that he would like a professional to work with him to improve things within the household. In one tape from August 2009, Moat was heard to say to a social worker, quote, I would like to have a psychiatrist, psychologist, have a word with me regularly, on a regular basis, to see if there's somewhere underlying, like where I have a problem that I haven't seen. Why don't we just have a psychiatrist sit me down and say, Right, okay, I want to see you regularly, then we can move forward towards where your areas of fault are and we can enhance on these areas, you know, and work with us. If I'm at fault in any way, I'm open to all kinds of suggestions, but I refuse to spend the rest of my time fighting with social services, end quote. In this conversation, it seems as if Moat was open to the idea that some of his behaviours might be causing problems and that there might be a psychological reason underlying this but it's up for debate as to how genuine Moat was when he said this. The only time a psychologist was involved in Moat's life was in the course of an assessment to determine whether or not his children could live with him. The report did not recommend any treatment for Moat at that time. A number of years before, Moat had started his own tree surgeon and landscape gardener business. Moat had realised that, although he liked his work at the clubs, His decision to build a new family-centred life meant that he needed to leave the night work and the grey economy and everything that that entailed for something more wholesome. Moat had always liked being outside and in nature and he enjoyed that aspect of his new work, though the work was seasonal and came with the stresses of the life of a self-employed person. Despite the fact that things seemed to be going well for Moat, Close friends noticed he was starting to show strain, something that was put down to the hassle he was getting from police. According to author Vanessa Howard, he expressed at times that he believed the police were out to get him and were trying to ruin his business and his life. For instance, according to Howard, Moat was pulled over in 2009 and was irritated and angry. His van had been loaded with scrap metal, but he was only licensed to carry garden waste. Moat was convinced that police were targeting him. As soon as he was stopped, the officers knew immediately that Moat was aggressive. One of them, PC Rathband, thought Moat must have been taking steroids as he was so big. Unfortunately for this policeman, it would not be the last run-in he had with Raoul Moat. Although Moat had been arrested 12 times, resulting in charges for seven separate offences, ranging from the more tame, like having once driven away without paying for petrol, to conspiracy to murder. All of these charges had eventually been dropped. Moat's views on police were summed up by Vanessa Howard in her book. According to the author, Moat thought the police were, quote, not only idiots, they were out to bully either those that had done nothing of consequence, old women who hadn't paid their TV licenses, or they would latch on to someone like him, someone who knew how to stand up to them, and they would persecute him, orchestrating a witch hunt. He hated the police and thought they should be careful not to push him too far, end quote. There were also other problems beyond those most experienced with the authorities. He'd find his tires slashed and windows broken. 
In June of 2009, Moat was charged with common assault on a child. Then, in July, his two older daughters were taken into care. After they were appointed a carer, Moat's interactions with social services deteriorated even further. In 2010, the relationship between Samantha and Moat began to get more volatile. She said that he would slap her nearly every other day, and their family life was punctuated more frequently by periods where she would move from the family home to stay with her grandmother. Eventually, however, Moat would apologise and Sam would take him back. But one night, Moat threw a stool at Sam and it caught their new baby. Immediately after this, Sam packed herself up and left when Moat was gone to work. By this stage, the separate issue of the charge of assault on a child was also hanging over Moat, and in May of 2010, Moat began his two-month stay at Durham Prison for assault of a minor. Despite having a number of arrests and charges in his past, Moat was anxious that his fellow prison mates not think he had hurt a kid, and he had pleaded not guilty, saying he hadn't hit this child, and he didn't hit any of his kids, though he wasn't really against the occasional clip on the ear to keep kids in line. Moat had announced in court when his conviction was read out that they were sending down an innocent man, and he told people afterward that the police had had a vendetta against him and had fitted him up. Confounding this frustration that Moat felt was the demise of his most recent relationship. Moat and Samantha had been together for six years at this stage. He'd been proud having the petite, pretty young woman on his arm, and his dreams of the perfect family life had been built around her as the mother of his youngest child. But after he was sent to prison, Samantha had visited only once. During this trip to Durham, she told Moat that they were done, and she thought it was best that he should have no contact with their little girl. After hearing that Samantha was finished with him, Moat had become agitated. He lost his temper with her and stood up screaming at her in the visiting room. Prison staff had to intervene. The breakup didn't just have an emotional effect on Moat. There were real-world material impacts for him too. With his custodial sentence, his contact with his other children had already been put at risk, and without any of his kids living with him, he'd likely lose his council house too. Despite their split, two days before Moat was to be released, he had tracked down Samantha and managed to call her on her mobile phone. Sam reiterated that their relationship was over. Moat was also told that Samantha had a new boyfriend, and to make matters worse, he was a police officer. After this two-minute conversation, Moat's mood changed drastically, and it was noted by those around him in the prison. Moat couldn't stop telling people that he had now lost everything. He appeared broken, very unlike the tough, hard-man persona he had presented up until that point. Moat was unable to sleep that night, consumed with anger and obsessed with his losses, and he spoke to a priest the following day, saying that he had thoughts of suicide. And then, on Thursday the 1st of July, Raoul Moat was released. That night, on Facebook, he posted a status update, quote, Just got out of jail. I've lost everything, my business, my property, and to top it off, my last of six years has gone off with someone else. I'm not 21, and I can't rebuild my life. Watch and see what happens. I'm delighted to say that this episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. You know, I never thought I'd have any great love for slugs. But here I am, over a year after I first started playing Best Fiends, and I have to say, I love the sluggy bad guys in this game. There's one with lashes that I am genuinely jealous of. My little creatures aren't so little anymore, and they are cute. I love Best Fiends because it's a casual game and it's easy to play, and it keeps you engaged with its fun challenges, which are updated with themes and events, so there's always something new for you to do. 
I've spent the last month collecting little valentines and trying to upgrade my favorite little axolotl to a pop star. Don't forget that you can add me as a friend on the app by heading to settings, my friends, and entering the code 19322067. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. So hurry, download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. From 20 past 11, the morning of his release, Moat's Facebook feed was filled for an hour with a flurry of angry and despairing posts over the circumstances he was in. Meanwhile, a security information report was completed by prison officers, a document used to flag any concerns prison authorities had about an offender and whatever danger they might pose once released. Moat was noted to have made threats towards his ex, and there was a risk he could seek her out and do harm to her. This report was passed on to the Northumbria police. However, for all intents and purposes, Moat was out free and clear. His short sentence meant that the probation services would not be following up, and he had no serious record of convictions to speak of. On the afternoon of his release, Moat met with a friend, Anthony Wright, and Wright was concerned about his friend's state of mind. Moat's eyes were glazed, his reactions were delayed, and Moat told him that being locked up for 23 hours out of the day had brought back bad memories from his childhood. Nothing Wright did seemed to cheer his friend up or snap him out of the blank affect he was displaying. According to Vanessa Howard, Wright said of Moat, quote, Raoul is no angel. He's been a bit of a bad lad in the past, but over the last few years, he'd made a hell of an effort and slogged his guts out to go straight and turn his life around. He came off steroids, set up his gardening business from scratch, and grafted seven days a week to make it work. There are lots of other jobs someone like Raoul could be doing where he could earn a lot more than 50 quid a day, but he wanted to be legit, above board, and settle down. End quote. Wright's description of Moat was a good summation of everything Moat thought he had lost, and what he saw as the wasted effort he had put in to try and create this new life for himself. Eventually that day, Moat made his way back to his home in Newcastle. He changed his clothes, he put on an orange t-shirt, dark jeans and white runners, and he shaved his hair into a distinctive mohawk. Then Moat headed out to gather things he would need to execute the plan that was forming in his mind. He obtained a sawn-off shotgun and went to the B&Q near his home in Fenham for other supplies, like camping gear. Then Moat set about trying to track down his former girlfriend, Samantha Stobart. Moat had called her a few times that evening, but she was out. She was with her new boyfriend, Chris Brown, who was 29 and a father of two. Samantha had answered the phone, but the fact that Sam was having a good time in a pub made Moat even more angry. However, Moat knew where Samantha liked to drink, and he also knew where her parents lived. It was only a matter of time before Moat would be able to track her down. Moat drove from Fenham to Samantha's parents' house and began his watch for his ex. That night, Samantha had planned to stay with her new boyfriend and had arranged to have her 19-month-old little girl babysat through the night at her parents' neighbour's house. But after the upsetting calls from Moat, Chris had suggested that he take her back to her parents' place. Sam agreed, but told Chris that she should make her way back there on her own. She knew that Moat didn't know what Chris looked like, so if he stayed away, there would be no likelihood of any trouble. Chris, however, wouldn't hear of it. And so they made their way to Sam's family home in Berkeley. But when they arrived in the street, they instead called into the neighbour, Jackie's, to check in on the little girl. Sam's mother, Leslie, had popped into the neighbours and was sitting up with Jackie having a chat. Sam and Chris joined them in the living room. While the four adults relaxed and laughed inside, Moat made his way through the gate to the back garden and crouched down below the window. 
When Chris went to leave at around half past two in the morning, Sam got up with him and they walked out of the house towards the green area across the road. Just then, there was a bang. Samantha screamed and Chris staggered forward. Moat had finally made his move. Sam immediately knew that the shot fired meant that Raoul had come after her. A second shot rang out, this time striking Chris Brown in the back. He fell to the ground and Sam rushed forward to him. Moat followed. Frightened by the vacant expression in her ex's face, Samantha then ran back towards the house. Moat made his way over to Chris Brown's prone body, stood over him and shot him in the back of the head as Brown lay on the ground, helpless. Back at the house, Sam's mum Leslie had run upstairs and grabbed the baby, before heading to the entrance of the attic, hoping that the little girl would stay hidden and quiet. Sam was downstairs trying to block the door to make sure that Moat couldn't enter, but there was no key in the lock. As Sam looked out the curtain to try and see what had become of Chris, Moat caught her outline. Moat fired yet another shot and Samantha yelled out as the bullet hit her stomach. Jackie grabbed Samantha and pulled her back away from the window and began trying to staunch Sam's wound with a tablecloth. Then they heard the front door. Sam's mother had rushed out to the front of the house and began yelling at Moat. She screamed, quote, You shot my baby. Shoot me, you bastard. End quote. The noise had also drawn Sam's father, Paul, out of their house two doors down. He ran to Leslie after seeing that Moat was aiming the shotgun to his wife's head. As Paul yelled, Moat turned and looked at him. For a second, the armed man hesitated, but then Moat turned and ran. Paul took off after him but stopped when he heard his wife yelling, so he turned and headed into Jackie's house. A neighbour had called 999 when the attack started and the emergency services arrived quickly. Sam, who was struggling to breathe, was rushed to Gateshead Queen Elizabeth Hospital for emergency surgery. Sadly, Chris Brown had died by the time paramedics made it to him. Police cordoned off the scene to begin their investigation. They took witness statements from those who had seen the shootings and established that Moat was Samantha's ex. From the outset, it seemed to investigators that this appeared to be an incident of domestic violence, albeit a particularly violent one. Detective Superintendent Steve Hose of Northumbria Police was in charge of the inquiry. He gave a statement in the hours following the shooting, saying, quote, I would like to stress that this is not a random attack and that the people involved were all known to each other. We believe the offender targeted his victims because of a grudge held against them, end quote. And so from the outset of the investigation, police knew who the perpetrator was. All they had to do was track him down. But police weren't starting from scratch either. Moat was known to them because of his many charges and his recent stint in prison. They knew where he lived and who his associates were and had the registration of the vehicle he was likely to be in. It seemed it was only a matter of time before they caught up to him. Later, on the afternoon of the 3rd of July, police released the name of the perpetrator as Raoul Moat and gave his description. They told the public not to approach him as he could be dangerous, but continued to stress that the people who had been injured had been known to their assailant. Meanwhile, Moat was watching the coverage of his attack. Late on that Saturday night, the 3rd, Moat called to an acquaintance's house, that of Andy McAllister. Inside, Moat told the man his side of the story, that he'd heard Sam and the others laughing at him, and he'd just snapped. But McAllister told Moat that he should hand himself in, and even offered to accompany him to a police station. Moat wouldn't agree, and told McAllister, quote, No, I've got nothing left, Andy, and I fully intend to take as many police as I can with me, end quote. Then Moat asked the other man for a mobile phone he could use to contact police and left the house just after midnight. About 45 minutes later, at a quarter to one on the 4th of July 2010, Moat came upon a police car which was sitting at a roundabout at the junction between the A1 and the A69, two major routes in the north of England. In the car was 42-year-old police constable David Rathband. 
He was positioned to respond to incidents on these major routes, but he was also aware of the manhunt in progress and the details of the vehicle it was thought Moat might be in. PC Rathband first noticed a man approaching him on foot, who rushed forward until the man was very close to the patrol car. The PC recognised the man as Moat and saw that in his hands was a sawn-off shotgun. Moat levelled the gun at Rathband and shot him through the passenger's side window of the car, hitting the police officer directly in the face. PC Rathband struggled about in the illuminated interior of the car, looking to relay an emergency message and make the cab live, meaning that his colleagues would be able to hear what was going on inside his car, and Rathband would be able to communicate with them. However, Moat was still watching the policeman. As he raised the shotgun for a second time, Rathband turned away from his attacker and tried to cover his face with his hand. His shoulder took the brunt of this second shot. Thankfully, this hadn't killed Rathband. He sat still and quiet as Moat walked away and then finally managed to radio for help. His colleagues rushed to his assistance. At the same time, a taxi driver had pulled onto the roundabout just as Moat had fired the shot. The driver saw a male figure jogging away from the police car and get into a black car parked nearby. The taxi man then managed to hail a passing ambulance and it, along with a number of armed police units, arrived on scene. Paramedics began treating PC Rathband as they rushed him to Newcastle General Hospital. The shotgun blast had driven 200 pellets into his face, and the officer wasn't sure if he would come out the other end of the attack. He asked the medics to tell his wife and children that he loved them in case he didn't. A statement was issued shortly after by police, which read in part, quote, A Northumbria police officer has been seriously injured after being attacked by an armed man described as dangerous. Police strongly believe that this shooting is linked to the incident in Gateshead in the early hours of Saturday morning. End quote. After Moat fled the scene of his latest shooting, he wrote a 49 page letter, which he delivered to his friend Anthony McAllister the following day in the early hours of the morning of Monday, the 5th of July. In this letter, Moat wrote about the events leading up to the shooting of PC Rathband, saying, quote, Last night I called 999 and declared war on Northumbria police before shooting an officer on the West End A69 roundabout in his T5, sitting there waiting to bully someone, probably a single mum who couldn't afford her car tax, rang again and told them they're going to pay for what they've done to me and Sam. I went straight, but they couldn't let it go. The public need not fear me, but the police should, as I won't stop till I'm dead. Moat had indeed made a phone call to 999 at 27 minutes past midnight, which had lasted six minutes. After he shot PC Rathband, another call was made at 25 to 2. Moat told the emergency operator that the police were not taking him seriously enough. Moat had also written in the letter that he had only shot to wound Sam, that he had been provoked by her and that her injuries would both serve to remind her of the pain she had caused him, and that the compensation she would get for her injuries would provide for her in place of Moat himself after his death. He said that he had intended to kill himself after the shootings at her parents' home, but had then changed his mind. Moat continued, quote, Those doctors better save her or I'll hit that hospital. I still love her despite everything. I'm very sorry about Sam and I wish I hadn't shot at her. Just make sure she stays alive. I never cheated on her. I wish she hadn't on me. She pulled the trigger by doing this just as much as me. End quote. On Sunday afternoon, the 4th of July, police issued an appeal directly to the man they were hunting for, asking Moat to give himself up for the sake of his children. Superintendent Neil Adamson continued, quote, you believe that Sam was having an affair with a Northumbria police officer. Sam has told us this was not true. Our inquiries have verified this to be not true. Mr. Moat, yesterday when you contacted the police, it was clear you believed certain things to be true. You have told us police that we are not taking you seriously. I can assure you we are. 
I want you to know you have our full attention. Innocent people have been hurt. End quote. The Northumbrian police had also been speaking to Anthony McAllister throughout the day, taking a statement about what had occurred at his house when Moat had arrived unexpectedly the night before. Meanwhile, in Gateshead Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Sam had undergone a five-hour surgery. She had suffered serious internal injuries, and had her arm not absorbed some of the impact of the shot, she would have died. In the early hours of Monday morning, the 5th of July, Andy McAllister was woken by a knock at his door. It was Moat. There was no police surveillance on the house, as no one had thought it likely that Moat would return, but he did and Moat handed over the 49-page letter. On Monday morning, police issued yet another statement on the manhunt. It had escalated overnight, and additional armed officers were brought in from Cleveland, Humberside, West Yorkshire, South Yorkshire, and Cumbria to assist. Specialist search teams had also been deployed overnight, which included the use of helicopters and dog teams. Officers also contacted people known to Moat, in an attempt to gather any information that might be of use to those in pursuit of the man. An update was also given about Moat's victims. Both Samantha and PC Rathband remained in hospital and were described as being in serious but stable conditions. Temporary Chief Constable Sue Sims gave a statement that day too, saying, quote, We are still appealing for help from the public. If anyone knows where this man is, we urgently need them to contact us straight away. Friends who may think they are helping him are merely prolonging this situation, which we need to safely resolve. Innocent people have been shot, one killed, and two others seriously wounded. And these events have shocked local people. Officers are working hard to track this man down, and this work will continue until we are successful. Meanwhile, the press had tried in vain to find any information on Raoul Moat but he had never been in any serious trouble until his conviction for assault. There was little in the public record that could give any insight into his character or his motives. Eventually, however, a source spoke to reporters and informed them that a security information report had been sent to police which stated Moat posed a risk to his ex-girlfriend. It wasn't clear if the information in that report had been read, let alone whether it had been discussed, to see if any action needed to be taken. When news of this report went public, police confirmed that an SIR had been created in relation to Moat, but clarified that there had been no mention of Moat shooting his ex in it, and said that the matter was going to be referred to the Independent Police Complaints Commission for further investigation. A decision was made to appeal to Moat once again. This time, Detective Chief Superintendent Neil Adamson spoke. He said, quote, Mr. Moat, we are aware that you have a number of issues and grievances. Some are very private. Others relate to how you feel that you've been treated by us. We want to understand your position, and I want you to realise that you do have a future. We can only help you with this if you want to make contact with us directly. We've spoken to Sam and she has asked us to say the following to you. Please give yourself up. If you still loved me and our baby, you would not be doing this anymore. Sam also said, When you came out of jail, I told you I was seeing a police officer. I said this because I was frightened. I have not been seeing a police officer. End quote. Samantha was under police protection in hospital in case of Moat making a second attempt on her life. Police also released a picture of PC Rathband's face with his agreement in the hopes that the shocking image would move people to help police to locate Moat. Then, at about 10 minutes to 11 that Monday night, an armed man entered a fish and chip shop in Seton Dilleville, nine miles west of Newcastle, and demanded money from the till. The man was described as about six foot tall, muscular, and somewhere in his mid-thirties. Thankfully, no one was hurt in the robbery. The man matched Moat's description, but there was no way to confirm in the immediate aftermath whether this had actually been the man who was on the run. In response, however, police released a description of the car that they believed Moat to be using, a souped-up black Lexus. It was their hope that this information would lead more quickly to Moat's capture and help to protect the public from further violent incidents. The night the description was issued, 
Mrs. Wilson, a retired lady, was out walking her dog with her husband and spotted the car parked in Rothbury at around 9pm, the same night as the fish and chip shop incident. The following day, Tuesday the 6th of July, she saw the news report with a description of Moat and his car and Mrs. Wilson called the police. At that stage, police were getting an average of 350 calls per day regarding Moat. Rothbury, a quaint old market town, now known for its hill walking, was a place well known to Moat. His family had had a caravan there when he was a child, and the area around the River Coquette was one of his favourite spots. The caravan park where he stayed was actually right next to the industrial estate where the Lexus was spotted. In response to the sighting of this car, police closed down the Rothbury area. There was a two-mile exclusion zone implemented and a further air exclusion zone to keep press helicopters away from the area. The public were advised to stay indoors and were told that they might see armed officers on their streets. Police located and took possession of the Lexus car that Mrs. Wilson had called in about, and other police teams moved in for a large-scale search operation. Another appeal was issued by police directly to Moat, quote, Please remember what I've said to you before. Don't leave your children with distressing memories of their father. You still have a future. Give yourself up now, end quote. This time, Superintendent Adamson also told the press that police were confident that they were closing in on Moat's location. There was no confirmation at that time that the holdup at the fish and chip shop was linked to Moat. Police also revealed that up to this point, there had been a partial media blackout on certain details of the investigation, as the letter that Moat had written indicated he may have taken hostages, and there was a possible risk to life in the publication of certain details but two men were arrested while walking in the Rothbury area that morning. These were the two men police had initially feared were being held hostage by Moat, but they were subsequently held on suspicion of conspiracy to commit murder. They were named as Carl Ness and Karam Awan. A third man was also detained after a property in Reckenton, Gateshead, was raided by police. By midday on the 6th of July, police searches were focused on the eastern part of Rothbury. There was a wooded area that was often used by those sleeping rough, which police moved into. Nearby businesses locked their doors. A disused farmhouse was also searched. One school in Rothbury was told to keep the children in after school had finished until the area was secured. They were finally released around 5pm that evening. An ex-girlfriend spoke to the press and said that she and Moat had spent time in their early twenties camping in the Rothbury area and that he knew the area like the back of his hand, with the implication that Moat could probably hide out in the area for a number of days without being found. People driving back into Rothbury, having worked all day in Newcastle, were stopped on the road and redirected to a local school where they were asked to stay. Police said they expected their search would last for several more hours. That evening, a local woman also rang police when she and her children returned to their home after being out all day. They noticed that some food was missing and then the woman thought she heard a noise coming from a closed bedroom door. They left the house, but when police responded, there was no one there. The family decided to stay with friends as they were too anxious. The house was broken into again overnight and it appeared that someone had slept in the spare bed. On Wednesday the 7th of July, police discovered a campsite used by Moat after a family reported seeing smoke rising from a fire near a farm on the outskirts of Rothbury. There they also found an eight-page letter Moat had written to Samantha. Police had also distributed their own letter for Moat to his friends, family and associates, which asked him to contact them. It acknowledged how angry Moat had been and said they wanted to discuss his grievances with him and give him an update on Sam's condition. Police also announced that a £10,000 reward was on offer for information leading to Moat's capture. The lockdown in the town had loosened slightly with the exclusion zone downgraded. Cars were being allowed in and out by police, but they were being thoroughly checked. The residents of the town were assured by police that it was safe to go about their business as normal, despite the continued patrols of the area. Specialist firearms officer teams 
and eight armed response vehicles were sent from the Metropolitan Police, and a request to the PSNI was made for 20 armoured cars. All of the routes in and out of the village were being monitored. By that stage, both PC Rathband and Samantha Stobert were reported as recovering well in hospital. But despite her armed guard, Samantha did not feel safe. In a bizarre move, Moat had somehow gotten and posted a Get Well Soon card to Samantha. It contrasted greatly with what Moat had written in the letter to her just days before, saying, quote, You knew exactly what I was capable of, especially over you, but you kept pushing. You killed me and him long before I pulled the trigger, end quote. Moat was clear that he believed Samantha's injuries and Chris Brown's death were her fault and her responsibility. On Wednesday evening, a handcuffed man wearing a flak jacket, an associate of Moat's, was led through fields near an old farm by police. He was helping to identify places Moat was known to have visited previously. Late on Wednesday night, Northumberland police received a phone call from a man who said he was Raoul Moat, and for a brief moment there was a thought that a breakthrough had finally come. But within minutes, it was clear that the call was in fact a hoax. On the sixth day of Moat's hideout from authorities, another statement was issued in the early morning, reiterating the police force's effort to locate Moat which had continued overnight. The spokesperson revealed that even with specialised teams and vehicles, the search remained difficult due to the nature of the terrain involved, which included areas of both open farmland and dense woodland. An update was to follow by way of a press conference at 11am. But there was a hasty change to that plan. That morning, Thursday the 8th of July, the Daily Telegraph had printed an interview with Moat's mother, Josephine. In it, she said, quote, I feel like he hasn't been my son since he was 19 years old. He now has a totally different character, attitude and manner. Now, when I see him, I don't recognise him at all. If I was to make an appeal, I would say he would be better dead, end quote. When the press conference was finally held, two hours late, at around 1pm, Sue Sim told reporters that Moat was now thought to be a danger to the public. Reporters wanted to know what new information had come to light, but police wouldn't say. The back and forth became rather tense. It was confirmed that the man arrested in Reckenton was released without charge, and that two others who had been picked up in Rothbury were being released on bail, pending further inquiries. After the conference, however, reporters were spoken to off the record. Police explained that a dictaphone had been found in one of Moat's tents, which seemed to have been purposely left for them to find. On it, the tape indicated that Moat had heard about his mother's interview and that he'd been angered by some of the coverage of him in the papers. The recording was four hours long and rambling at places, but the main cause of concern was a threat issued by Moat. He said that for every inaccurate piece of reporting he saw, he would kill a member of the public. It was also clear that Moat saw members of the press and media as potential targets too. Police said they didn't have any specifics about previous reporting that Moat had objected to. The press agreed to cooperate with police requests to limit reporting on the investigation. No more stories about Moat's personality or background would be published, and stories already published on news websites were removed shortly after the -the off-the-record communication. That day, two of the men who had been arrested in Rothbury, Ness and Owen, appeared before the magistrate's court. According to the BBC, they were accused of joining Moat in his hunt for policemen to shoot. They were also accused with supplying Moat with the gun used in the shootings. Police believed that Ness was with Moat when he shot Samantha, a claim denied by the men's lawyers. Later that day, police got reports that Moat had been seen at a local allotment and had broken into one of the greenhouses. He stole the only ripe tomato from the plants. It appeared that Moat was running out of food. A further update was given to the community that evening by Sue Sims. She said, quote, From the outset we have stressed Mr Moat's grievances are largely directed towards police. Information has now emerged that Mr Moat has made threats towards the wider public. 
I want to stress that we have the resources and resilience to deal with this situation, and my officers are out in large numbers to provide reassurance and protection. End quote. It was also announced that a man and woman had been arrested in Blythe that afternoon and were being questioned on suspicion of assisting an offender. On Thursday evening, a woman spotted a man walking on High Street in Rothbury at around 11pm, who she believed to be Mr Moat. He was wearing a baseball cap. She'd smiled and said hello at the man, and he'd looked away and had a quote-unquote sheepish expression. Another man saw the same figure further down the road and alerted police officers too. Police also revealed that in the course of the investigation they had located two mobile phones and a third was handed in by a member of the public, found while out walking on open land in Rothbury. All of them were thought to have been used by Moat. The first phone was found in Berkeley in the early hours of Saturday morning near to Sam's parents' house. Police wouldn't say where the second had come from, only that two 999 calls had been made from the handset around the time of PC Rathband's shooting. Overnight, on the 8th and 9th of July, an RAF plane, equipped with infrared sensors, was deployed in the Rothbury area to aid in the ongoing search for Raoul Moat. The following morning, Friday the 9th of July, police issued an update statement just after 12 noon saying that they felt there had been positive developments in the search for Moat in the previous day. A search was being carried out at Craigside House and Gardens, a National Trust property, and the domain was cordoned off by police. Storm drains, installed in recent years in Rothbury to alleviate flooding, which ran under the main street of the village and out to the riverbank, were also examined. There were rumours in the village that Moat had been using these large drains to make his way through and around the town over the last number of days, and that this was how he had thwarted police efforts to locate him. But that evening, at about 7pm, Moat was on the move. He was headed towards the river, and police officers finally spotted him as he was out in the open. Moat began to run, and the officers gave chase. Quickly, police vehicles began to converge in the area. Local people were once again advised to stay inside their homes as police announced a negotiation was underway. An exclusion zone was established around the spot on the river that Moat had been corralled in, and traffic was stopped from entering Rothbury on its east side. Meanwhile, Moat stood on the riverbank wearing dark clothing and a baseball cap while holding his shotgun to his head. Nearby residents could hear loud shouting, followed by quiet, which indicated that the police negotiator had arrived and was trying to bring Moat back to a state of calm. Two groups of armed police were stationed at either side of Moat and were ready to rush at him if the opportunity presented itself, or to intervene and shoot him if it looked as if Moat might make an attempt to open fire on police. Moat lay on the grass just 20 feet away from the negotiators, with the gun clearly visible. Police did not know whether it was his intention to shoot himself or at police should they approach, or whether he might simply give himself up when he was ready. And if he was intending to give himself up, that possibility seemed like it might be a long while away. Press gathered to view the standoff against police requests, and that evening most trended number one on Twitter as people followed the news from Rothbury. Meanwhile, a team of three negotiators tried to convince Moat to come quietly into custody. His mood changed from calm to agitated to forlorn. Moat told the police that he had lost his opportunity at a future. As darkness fell, floodlights were brought in. An old friend of Moat's arrived on the scene hoping to speak to the man, but ultimately he was not allowed beyond the cordon. Moat's brother watched the standoff unfold on television. He too had wanted to speak to Moat, but police did not bring him to Rothbury. Later, Angus Moat would say he felt sure he could have talked his brother down. Another person also wanted to talk to Moat, but this time it was a person with a higher profile. England footballer Paul Gascoigne made a frankly bizarre call to Real Radio, a local Newcastle station, and claimed that he knew Moat. 
that he knew Moat was a good guy, that Moat had been on drugs but they'd worn off, and if police would just let him, Gascoigne, down to the riverbank with the supplies he'd brought for the gunman, Gascoigne would be able to get Moat to put the gun down. But police would have none of it. Back at the riverbank, communication between Raoul and the negotiators was established. Moat was given the go-ahead to sit up and then to stand, to stop his muscles from cramping. But Moat kept the shotgun to his throat throughout this. He asked for food and was brought sandwiches and a bottle of water, though he told police that the packages had to be sealed, as he thought it was possible the police might attempt to drug him. Nearby residents could hear some of what Moat was saying. Some spoke to reporters telling them that Moat had declared, quote, I don't have a dad, and, quote, nobody cares about me. Despite these encouraging signs, every time Moat was asked to give himself up, he simply stated that he did not want to spend the rest of his life in a cell. Negotiators told him that the police would not hurt him and tried to reassure him that all was not lost for his future, though of course there was no way they could discuss the notion of him walking free. Finally, at twenty past one in the morning, six hours after the standoff began, and in a heavy downpour of rain, a shot was fired. It came after Moat had been vacillating between states of despair, anger and paranoia. Police had made plans to carry out what was described as a forensic arrest, which would have seen Moat tackled to the ground and his hands bagged to protect any evidence to be used in the subsequent trial against him. But in the end, that was not needed. The shot that rang out was from Moat's own shotgun which inflicted a wound to his head. When police finally did rush in, they secured his weapon and checked for life signs. Moat was still breathing. He was rushed to hospital, but at 12 minutes past two, Raoul Moat was pronounced dead. One police officer had discharged a taser at Moat, and the circumstances around this would be examined in the Independent Police Complaints Commission report that was almost immediately launched after Moat's death. The manhunt for Raoul Moat was mentioned a number of times in Westminster too. After Moat's death, the Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, condemned expressions of sympathy for Moat by some members of the public, saying that Moat was instead a callous murderer. A Facebook page had been set up in Moat's memory, and some people had left floral and other tributes outside his home and at the scene of his death. Facebook was contacted to remove the group R.I.P. Raoul Moat, You Legend, which had over 30,000 members and was attracting a large number of anti-police remarks. But a spokesperson for Facebook said that the group would not be removed as it encouraged public debate about issues in the media. She said people remained free to report material which went against their terms of service. The page was eventually taken down by its creator, who said she didn't condone what Moat had done but also felt sorry for him, as he didn't get the help he had needed. Speaking on national radio, she said she had been surprised by the reaction to the page. On the 13th of July, an inquest into Moat's death was opened. A senior investigator for the IPCC told the coroner's court that two officers had indeed shot Moat with tasers in an attempt to prevent Moat from completing suicide. The weapons had not been given official approval for use by police officers at that stage, though it was noted that the government allows various forces to use discretion in selecting the equipment they deem necessary for use in particular situations, so long as their use of force is lawful. The coroner concluded that Moat's cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head, and the inquest was adjourned until a later date. Angus Moat told BBC News, if Raoul Moat had had the support network around him, he might not have got to where he got to. I think he was clearly a man who was in deeper water than people realised, including myself, unfortunately. End quote. Angus Moat described his brother's death and the circumstances around it as a public execution. A number of months later, it would emerge that the company that had produced the tasers used during the standoff had supplied them to police in breach of their contract, and the company had had its license revoked. Shortly after this, the director of operations at the firm, a former policeman himself, died by suicide. 
By the 20th of July 2010, the BBC reported that 20 arrests had been made in relation to the shootings carried out by Moat. Still, only two people had been charged, Ness and Awan, who faced charges of conspiracy to murder. In February of 2011, Carl Ness, then 26, and Karam Awan, then 23, went on trial, variously facing charges ranging from the murder of Chris Brown, the attempted murder of PC Rathband, conspiracy to murder, possession of a firearm with intent to endanger life, and a charge of robbing a shop. It was the Crown's case that Carl Ness had been with Raoul Moat when he shot Samantha Stobert and Chris Brown. Ness knew Sam's new boyfriend was the 29-year-old karate instructor Chris Brown, and he had waited nearby when Raoul Moat began shooting at people outside Sam's parents' house on the 2nd of July. Karam Awan was alleged to have been driving the black Lexus when Moat was out looking for a policeman to shoot. The court was given details of the relationship between Mr. Moat and Miss Stobert. Then Miss Stobert took to the stand and described the events which led up to the shooting outside her parents' home on the morning of the 3rd of July the year before. Both defendants argued throughout the five-week trial that they had in fact been Moat's hostages for the time that they were with him. However, both were found guilty. Ness was given three concurrent life sentences for murder, conspiracy to murder, and attempted murder. He was told he would spend a minimum of 40 years in prison before being considered for release. Awan was handed down two concurrent life sentences for conspiracy to murder and attempted murder. His minimum tariff was 20 years. Both men were also found guilty of firearms offences. In sentencing, Mr Justice Combe said that Moat would have been given an even longer sentence had he lived, and told the men, quote, While the offences may not have been committed without Moat, it is difficult to see that they could have been committed in the manner they were without Ness and Awan respectively. This too can be said to be a crime meriting punishment of the utmost severity, even though these defendants did not fire the gun, end quote. In September of 2011, the inquest into Moat's death was reconvened. The coroner's court heard that the IPCC report had concluded that there was no evidence of misconduct by the officers involved. Those who had discharged tasers had in fact done so in order to try and incapacitate Moat and prevent him from injuring himself. The jurors returned a verdict of suicide in the case. They also determined that Moat had not asked to talk to a family member or friend in the six-and-a-half-hour standoff, a statement which Angus Moat was highly critical of. Six months later, on the 29th of February 2012, David Rathband, the PC shot and blinded by Moat, was found dead at his home in Blythe. Police had been called out and had gone to the house to check on his welfare. Mr Rathband had died by suicide. Northumbrian Police Chief Constable Sue Sims said, quote, I am deeply saddened to have to confirm the death of PC David Rathband, and my thoughts are with his family, friends, and colleagues at this difficult time. End quote. In January of 2014, ahead of an inquest into the death of PC Rathband in 2012, the IPCC commissioner said that it was quote, unsatisfactory that two police officers had not acted on intelligence provided to them that Moat was a danger to people. She was referring to the report which had learned that Moat had told a fellow inmate that he wanted revenge and had named his ex and her new boyfriend. This information had been passed on to police in a phone call and in an email, but no one had been specifically named in that communique and so police officers in the domestic violence unit left the station and finished their shift without taking any action. The following day, Moat's shootings began. This action wasn't at the level of misconduct, but it was certainly unsatisfactory, said Miss Butts. The BBC had got sight of the draft IPCC report in 2012. The report said that the information that was given by Moat to the inmate had been watered down by that man when he passed it on to prison officers. When the risk assessment was sent on to police and the SIR, the serious harm was posed rather as intent to seriously assault. According to the BBC, the SIR was then passed through the hands of three senior officers and a prison officer rang the Public Protection Unit, 
yet no action was taken. In 2012, Chief Superintendent Neil Adamson of Northumbria Police gave comment on the draft report, saying, quote, Officers were faced with a very limited piece of information from Durham Prison. I want to make it clear from the outset at no stage did that information ever suggest that there was a real and immediate threat to life, end quote. It was Chief Superintendent Adamson's assertion that the information was not specific and officers had assessed and treated the information in the same way as they would have done with any report. He continued, quote, To try and suggest that we could have prevented Moat's attacks, I think, is a step too far. I'm convinced he would have done what he intended doing. Such was his focus, end quote. In 2014, in response to the IPCC commissioner's statement, Detective Chief Constable Steve Ashman from Northumbria said that the report was flawed and that the comments made by Ms. Butts were grossly unfair and inconsistent. It was also inconsistent with what had been ruled by the coroner at Moat's inquest. There is no doubt that Raoul Moat had a difficult childhood, and it does seem likely that he lived with either severely hampered mental health or a personality disorder. It may be that, had he had robust support in place, the disaster that followed his release from prison may have been averted. Perhaps he would have avoided prison altogether. But Moat's sense of entitlement to his feelings of vengeance, the fact that the solution to his problems was to kill and maim and then blame the woman he claimed to love, give a stronger indication that help or support might not have been enough. Because Moat didn't want to do the work that would have come with help. He didn't even really want vengeance. What he wanted, more than anything, was control. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Lorraine Joy, Serena, Linda O'Hara, Elizabeth Dupont, Christine Klassen, Anya McGrillen, David Devaney, and... Brian Garland, Martina Ganaki, and Lily Bentley, who have upped their pledges. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and, along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Best Fiends. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. A special hello and thank you to Linda Kelly on Twitter, who pointed out that when I say Gardasaurus, it sounds like Gardasaurus. Two weeks later, I'm still getting joy from the notion of a dinosaur dressed as a guard. And on that note, keep your eyes peeled on the Mens Rea merch shop, because there may be some dinosaur-related editions coming soon. Our theme music is Quinsung, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. I'm Jules from Riddle Me That True Crime. I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold, and Jules and I want to tell you a little bit about a case that means a great deal to us. The death of nine-month-old baby Jacob Landine on April the 10th, 1987 in Socorro, New Mexico. The day prior to his death on April 9th, baby Jacob was being watched by his mother Brenda's new boyfriend, John not his real name, in his mobile home on 1453 Fatima Drive. While John was babysitting Jacob, Jacob would incur what would be his second head injury in a period of weeks. The prior head injury was a subdural hematoma, or brain bleed, and it was serious enough that it needed to be lanced to take pressure off baby Jacob's brain while being monitored by doctors over the course of several days. 
The circumstances surrounding how Jacob was injured and subsequently died are murky at best, with the suspect giving multiple versions of the events of the day, ranging from Jacob choking and accidentally hitting his head while trying to dislodge a cookie, to Jacob falling and John returning to see the injured infant. The suspect also reportedly confessed to officers that he was indeed responsible, but there is no paper or audio record of this confession in the police file. The reasons given by the DA for not pursuing the case are confusing as well, with one of the reasons being that they were worried that John would file charges against the state. It was the opinion of the doctors that baby Jacob was struck in the head and this was no accident. In the years to follow, John goes on to sexually abuse young Eric, as well as physically abusing his mother Brenda, and emotionally abusing and isolating them both, making the world very small. During the autopsy, layers of abuse seem to be present. A healing rib fracture from around the time of the first head injury is also discovered. It's impossible to say exactly when the injury took place, but what is clear is that someone was abusing young Jacob, and that person was most likely John. Eric Landine, Jacob's brother, has been fighting to get justice for him. However, he faces some obstacles such as the statute of limitations of six years on second-degree murder that state representative Bill Ream has petitioned to have overturned. Join Robin and I, as well as criminologist Dr. Ashley Wellman, an investigative expert, a legal expert, a forensic psychiatrist, as well as Jacob's brother Eric, as we explore all angles of this case and try to bring awareness, understanding, and hopefully, ultimately, justice for Jacob. The series starts on March the 1st. Tune in on your favorite podcast app.